Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast in the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 58, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It is early Friday morning, March the 10th, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. Also, I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. A little bit of a hot shower by Chance the Rapper. Um, yeah, we are, for the first time in quite a while, we are back in the shed. A little bit of Chance the Rapper to celebrate the fact that we are back in the shed. Why not? Why not? It's my shed and I can I can do as I please. <laughs> Yeah, so it's been quite a while. This is only our second episode of 2023, and uh, it's not because I was out there trying to find the truth about the Chinese spy balloons. Um, It's not because I have passed away or won the lottery. I just got busy. I just got busy. I got busy with life. Things have been uh, changing rapidly in my neck of the woods. A lot of things happening. Busy with work and family and children and... uh, Did I miss two months of the show simply because I've been watching a lot of television? Did I miss recording this show because I was binging the new season of Outer Banks? Am I a grown man who is 33 years old but who cannot help but watch the teen drama, the mystery, The borderline soap opera of Outer Banks on Netflix. (laughs) I don't care. I don't care. If that show comes out with a new season, I'm watching it all in two days. 48 hours tops, and I've seen the whole thing. Spoiler alert, JJ dies. Sorry for that. 
Also watched uh, a lot of Narcos. Uh, never have I seen Narcos uh, before up until now. I know I'm late to the game. But I have now finished Narcos and Narcos Mexico. And I have been Googling things that uh, that worry my wife. Um, <laughs> your boy trying to decide how he's going to organize his own cartel. But hey, we will not be dealing drugs in this cartel. We're a cartel of hope. Because your boy is a hope dealer. And I'm putting it on a t-shirt. And I'm selling it to you online. <laughs> I also watched this show called Homestead Rescue, which is much more Alabama. Uh, about people who are struggling to, to live in their kind of off-the-grid, uh, backwoods lifestyles where they are self-sufficient. And then this family comes in and rescues them. It's a phenomenal show. And to be honest, for the last couple weeks, I've been stuck by the fact that I learned a piece of information that has shaken me to my core. And that's that kangaroos will wade into a body of water and appear to be drowning. And when anyone comes in to try and help them, they will grab that other animal or person by the head and pull them under the water and attempt to drown them. Kangaroos. The bullies of the outback. It has been a while. This is meant to be a most of the time weekly news show, but we are back and we are trying to get back in the saddle, back on the grind, back in the swing of things. Uh, One really neat thing that happened since I have last talked to you, uh, you may remember episode 46 of the show, one of my favorite episodes that we have recorded uh, with my good friend Miggy C, recording artist and recovery leader from Montrose, Colorado out there in the Western Slope. Well, just today, uh, an article and a a short documentary piece um, about Mickey and about his recovery and his music and his life premiered on Rocky Mountain PBS. And in the article, uh, I got to speak with the guy that put it together, and uh, your boy was quoted a few times. The podcast was mentioned. And then on the the video itself, um, several clips from our episode with Mickey C., was used for that piece and it's really neat it's really cool for a show like this that is small but constantly growing uh this very niche that doesn't really have a giant listenership although we're big in india uh it was very cool for a show like ours to to make it onto the same platform that i grew up watching as a child that my children watched look i'm on the same channel as arthur okay i'm on the same channel as arthur the aardvark uh, I think he's an aardvark, I believe. Um, but we are coming up in the world, and so is Miggy C. And I was so thrilled to be a part of a project that uh, shone a spotlight on him, on his incredible story, uh, which is one of hope, which is one of overcoming. And if you haven't heard that episode of the podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was episode 46 of the show. We got big love for Miggy C. on this show and in this shed. Um, His music video next, his first music video, uh, can be found on YouTube. The article and video that I'm talking about can be found on rmpbs.org. It's on their homepage today. And his EP, his his debut EP, You're Right, I'm Sorry, comes out on March the 23rd. So so make sure to go to the La Familia Group website, pre-order a copy of that EP, whether digital or a hard copy and support Mickey C. He's a tremendous young man. 
and I sound old when I say that, but I've known him since he was a very, very young man, and uh, we were thrilled to be a part of that with Rocky Mountain PBS as well. All right, enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections. Our humble little show is being listened to across the globe in 62 countries and counting. 62 countries. We haven't put out an episode for like two months. And when I last checked in, we were being listened to in 30-something countries. And now we have been listened to in 62 countries in total and counting. And in looking at the list of countries, some of them really caught me by surprise. All of a sudden, we have been listened to twice in China. We have five listeners in Saudi Arabia. We've been listened to in Gibraltar, wherever that is, and also in Jamaica. So hey, we're growing. We are, of course, being listened to all over this great country of ours in all 50 states, but we also continue to be incredibly popular in India for some reason, which now makes up almost 44% of our listening audience. Almost half. (laughs) Almost half of our listening audience comes from India. And India, that is why I love you, because you love us and you support us. Following India in the United States is the UK... France, where we continue to experience steady growth. Mexico, which has now surpassed Australia in amount of listeners. Canada, Ireland, Japan, which is now in the top 10. And Singapore. I also want to give a special shout out to our four new listeners this week in Iran. Somehow. Glad to have you in the shed. We're currently averaging more listeners per episode than ever before. That is still true thanks to you. And we have surpassed 7,000 followers on Twitter since last recording. You can follow us there at InTheShed4. We're closing in on 7,000 downloads as well. You can support the show by purchasing a t-shirt. Visit InTheShedWithWest.MyShopify.com to check those out. They're comfortable, they feature fun designs, and would make a great gift. You buy a shirt and we'll keep that 50-foot extension cord plugged in. We'll keep bringing you the news and we will keep growing this thing together. We have a great show for you today as rain begins to fall on the roof of the shed, which highlights our lack of production value, sure, but also showcases our realness. Because if nothing else, we keep it real with you here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson. And authenticity is the currency of the future, which means we will be in good shape. But let's get to some listener emails. Our first email comes from Lance, my twin brother Lance, from Seattle, who writes, Wes, did you quit the show? Haven't been able to find a new episode in months. No, Lance. (laughs) I did not quit the show. In fact, I'm reading your email on a new episode of the show that will be out this weekend. You can hear it. You can listen. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Life has just been busy, and this show doesn't pay the bills. So unfortunately, sometimes I have to just get to it when I am able. But we're back. Thank you for listening to the show, and thank you for writing in Lance. You're also probably experiencing some rainfall right now, I guess, over there in Seattle. Our next email comes from Lila from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who says, Learned about the show on Twitter. It's weird. And I enjoy it. (laughs) I just love the emails that we get into this show. Sometimes they're positive. Sometimes they're not. This one I I would include in the positive category. 
It's a weird show. But Lila from Baton Rouge also enjoys it. And I'm glad. I'm glad that you do. It is a strange show. We cover a lot of different things. But it's fun. We have a good time together. Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for writing in. Lila, hope you continue to enjoy it. And finally, Omar from Turkey writes, Wes, I am from the nation of Turkey. Am I the first to write this show from my nation? I am one of your listeners. I believe so, Omar. Uh, I believe you are the first person to ever write our show from the nation of Turkey. Congratulations to you. You should win a prize. Um, That should be a new thing on the show. If you're the first person to write our show from your particular country, you should win a prize. So let me think on that. Omar, I love Turkey. I love Turkey. I love that it makes you a little bit sleepy. Um, (laughs) I had to look it up. We actually have seven listeners in Turkey, Omar, but you are definitely the first to write our show. I'm so glad you're listening. That is pretty cool. Thank you, Omar. That's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. There are apparently very few targets that you have to hit in order for your email to get read. Um, You just send it in. You just send me anything. Attach your name to it and where you're from. And it's going to wind up on an episode. So yeah. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. The game has changed. Nikki Haley floats raising retirement age to save entitlement programs, writes the National Review. U.S. economy added 311,000 jobs in February, reports the Wall Street Journal. Putin dealt double below as two of his closest allies turn on him, says Newsweek. From The Guardian, former vice president warns it would be recklessly irresponsible to allow Alaska oil drilling plan. And finally, Saudi Arabia and Iran agree to reestablish ties in talks hosted by China. And that is according to the New York Times. Our first story in the world of politics, COVID-19 likely originated with lab leak U.S. Energy Department finds and new report. The COVID-19 pandemic most likely originated from a lab leak, according to a classified intelligence report from the U.S. Energy Department. The report, which was included in an update to a 2021 document by Director of National Intelligence Avril Hines' office, was recently provided to the White House and other lawmakers. Sources told the Wall Street Journal that the updated assessment from the Energy Department is the result of new intelligence. The Energy Department, which oversees a network of U.S. national laboratories, made its judgment with low confidence, the Wall Street Journal reported. The assessment marks a change from 2021 when the department was undecided on how the virus originated. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan responded to the report on Sunday during an appearance on CNN's State of the Union. Here's what I can tell you. President Biden has directed repeatedly every element of our intelligence community to put effort and resources behind getting to the bottom of this question, Sullivan said. If we gain any further insight or information, we will share it with Congress. We will share it with the American people. But right now, there is not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. A declassified intelligence report released in November of 2021 previously revealed that the FBI concluded with moderate confidence that the pandemic began with the laboratory accident following a 90-day review ordered by President Biden. 
The FBI still holds this view, according to the report, while four other agencies and the National Intelligence Council assess with low confidence the pandemic was likely caused by natural transmission from an infected animal. Two other agencies, including the CIA, are undecided. Several virology labs are located in Wuhan, where the pandemic began, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where bat coronaviruses were studied. U.S. officials told the Wall Street Journal that while the Energy Department and FBI agreed that an unintended lab leak was likely the cause of the pandemic, both agencies made their assessment for different reasons. While many officials once dismissed the lab leak theory, instead claiming an outbreak at a seafood market in Wuhan, China was the source of the virus, some scientists and officials now believe the outbreak was just an example of community spread and not where COVID-19 originated, according to the report. A team of experts from 10 countries released a report on behalf of the WHO in March 2021 saying the virus was likely spread from an animal to humans, calling a theory that the virus was released in a lab by accident extremely unlikely. The researchers said they would not recommend further investigation. And that is interesting to me, that they would not recommend further investigation. Because everybody says that we don't know for sure. And if we don't know for sure, why would we recommend that there is no further investigation, WHO? Very interesting. But I digress. However, Peter Ben Emberich, the WHO food safety and animal disease expert who led the organization's investigation into the origins of the novel coronavirus, said in a Danish documentary months later that the Chinese colleagues influenced the presentation of the team's findings. Oh... I see. In the beginning, they didn't want anything about the lab in the report because it was impossible, so there was no need to waste time on that, Ben Emberich said. We insisted on including it because it was part of the whole issue about where the virus originated. The Wall Street Journal report comes out one month after the House Republicans formed a select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic to investigate the origins of COVID-19 and other aspects of the pandemic. So... Here we are three years after the outbreak worldwide of the coronavirus. Three years after the outset of this global pandemic that everyone agrees originated in Wuhan, China. A place where there happens to be a laboratory that studies novel coronaviruses. And for the better part of two years... If you were to suggest in public that it was possible, not even necessarily likely, but if you were just to say that it was possible that, hey, maybe the coronavirus didn't spread because people were eating some weird animals in a wet market, but maybe it has something to do with the laboratory in Wuhan that studies this particular type of virus. A laboratory that had already been cited on multiple occasions for a lack of protocol when it comes to security and cleanliness. A laboratory where uh, multiple people had, had gotten sick with an ailment that reportedly showed up in many of the ways that coronavirus does. If you were to suggest that for most of the last two years, you were labeled a conspiracy theorist. You were said that you were alt-right, that you were uh, being xenophobic, that you were going against science, even though we really don't know for sure to this day what happened. 
Even though we never really got down to patient zero, we don't have a full accounting of what happened and when. Even though all of this started in a nation uh, in China who their media is completely controlled, that is reticent to share information with us, the United States, and our government, who does not allow freedom of the press and freedom of speech, who monitors social media, we were told no chance. Only now for both the FBI and the Department of Energy to come out and say, it's our conclusion that the coronavirus came from a lab in Wuhan that studies coronaviruses. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Um, reality truly is stranger than fiction. Uh, and look, the truth is we still don't know. We don't know for sure. It may have been the wet market, okay? It may have been the lab. It may have been some combination of the two. It could have been something that we don't even know yet. Let's be straight about that. We keep it 100 with you on this show. But for this pandemic to have become so polarizing and so politicized from the beginning that actual scientific practices and methods and investigative methods were labeled as conspiracy theory, for people to question the narrative put forth by China, for those people to be called crazy, only now for three years later for folks to go, ah, maybe. It's wild. It's wild. And you have podcasts like this one we didn't focus on the coronavirus ad nauseum because it was all over the news everywhere else. When there was news to share and report, that's what we did. Otherwise, we covered other topics of interest. But even a show like ours, an independent news show that keeps it lighthearted, that doesn't take ourselves too seriously, there were several episodes of our show on Spotify that got a label for coronavirus misinformation. Misinformation on this show because we had the audacity to question the, the mainstream narrative. Not because we drew conclusions, not because we tried to tell you something that wasn't true, but because we asked questions. I find that to be interesting. The FBI says that they are moderately certain. The Department of Energy says that they have a low confidence in their conclusion, but both say that, hey, when looking at all possibilities, we think that this one is the most likely. That this lab in Wuhan where we know coronavirus started that happened to study coronaviruses that had a history of not really following safety protocols, maybe they accidentally let something loose. Maybe when you play around with viruses, something like this can happen on occasion. I've seen it in about a dozen Hollywood movies. And we might have just experienced it in real life. To me, the story here is not that the FBI or the Department of Energy reached this conclusion. It's not that this is the definitive answer because we still don't know, but what is the story here is the way that this whole situation was handled by the media. The way it was covered by the media. The way they painted one possibility as certain scientific fact and another possibility as absurd. Even though common sense would tell you that it is a possibility and it could even be a likely one. And I happen to find it interesting, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I happen to find it interesting that when the, the lab leak theory was labeled a conspiracy theory, was early in the, the term of the new president, coming off of a bit of a trade war under the Trump administration between the U.S. and China, when we were trying to kind of smooth over our relationship and re-engage in trade talks with the Chinese government. And at the time we said, 
No, 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 no. It didn't. This didn't come from a lab leak. No, no. That's absurd. And now that we're not really seeing eye to eye with China, now that China has uh, taken up posts in the Middle East and in Africa with the Silk Road Initiative, now that they're buying influence internationally, now that they're having conversations on sidebars with Vladimir Putin and Russia, now that there's talk of them possibly arming Russia like we have Ukraine, now that there's a lot of dissension, people worried about will they invade Taiwan, these Chinese spy balloons... Now that the political landscape has changed, it becomes public that more than one of our intelligence agencies has actually discerned that mm, maybe it came from a Chinese lab. I find that to be very interesting. The timing of it all, the politicalization of it all, and honestly, it's pretty silly. It's pretty silly. I know I'm from Alabama. I talk with a little bit of a southern twang. But I'm not right-wing, okay? I don't ride a horse for the Republicans. I'm not going to bat for the Democrats. I'm independent. I'm independent. I'm not on Team Trump. I'm not on Team Biden. I just try to share news with you that I find to be important and interesting in a way that's not being covered by the mainstream press. And that's what we've done when it has come to the coronavirus for the last three years. And so I find this story to be very interesting. And I find the fact that people are still saying, well, okay, a couple of intelligence agencies might have come to a conclusion that they're not even very certain about. But most people agree. Hey, do you know what most real people agree on? We don't know. We don't know. And we don't trust the answers that we're given. And we don't trust the questions are actually being asked. And listen, uh, we've heard so much over the last three years, trust the science. Let me tell you something I learned in about fifth or sixth grade about science. It follows evidence. It follows truth that is borne out through experimentation and the collection of data. That's what science is. Science is not drawing an early conclusion and sticking with it. Science is forming a hypothesis testing that hypothesis, then drawing conclusions. And in this instance, it's clear that that has not been done for political reasons. So did coronavirus come from a lab in Wuhan? Yeah, maybe so. Was it accidentally leaked because they they didn't follow proper safety protocol? Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Was it then spread in a wet market where uh, animals were being eaten that probably shouldn't have? It was an unhealthy situation? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Most likely we'll never know for sure. But according to the FBI, and according to the Department of Energy, they believe it came from a lab leak. And according to someone that worked closely with the World Health Organization to release their report, there were Chinese scientists and colleagues and politicians who said, hey, we don't even want the lab mentioned as a part of the report. We don't even want that said out loud or put in print, that that is even a possibility. And one thing that we do know is that is not science. It's not science. So the long and short of it is this, some things we know, some things we will never know. But one thing that we are certain of is we're not getting the full story. Not from our own government, not from our own media, not from our own scientific community. 
and especially not from the WHO or from China. And that is the truth. Our next story in the world of politics, Mexico's ex-security minister, Gennaro Garcia Luna, convicted of drug trafficking. Gennaro Garcia Luna, once Mexico's security minister, was found guilty of taking millions of dollars from Mexico's biggest crime group, the Sonola Drug Cartel. Garcia Luna, who was arrested in the state of Texas in 2019, had pleaded not guilty. The 54-year-old could face life in prison. At a minimum, Garcia Luna will serve the mandatory minimum of 20 years, according to a statement from the Department of Justice. The verdict came after a four-week trial and three days of jury deliberation in the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn, New York. Prosecutors said the former head of the Mexican equivalent of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation accepted millions of dollars stuffed in briefcases and delivered by members of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman's Sonola drug cartel. Garcia Luna, who moved to the U.S. after leaving office, is the highest-ranking Mexican official ever to be tried in the U.S. On Twitter, a spokesperson for current Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, Jesus Ramirez Cuavez, praised the decision and took aim at former Mexican President Felipe Calderon. Garcia Luna served under Mr. Calderon, who oversaw a crackdown on drug cartels beginning in 2006. Justice has arrived for the former squire of Felipe Calderon, Mr. Ramirez Cuavez wrote. The crimes against our people will never be forgotten. In a statement to BBC News, Mr. Calderon defended his administration's handling of the fight against organized crime and said that the verdict against Garcia Luna was already being used to politically attack me. I've been the president who has acted the most against organized crime, he said. I fought to build an authentic rule of law without which there is no freedom, justice, or development. Mr. Calderon added that with the information available at the time, I took due diligence measures in the creation and operation of the government team. Yoan Grillo, a Mexican-based British author and expert on Mexico's criminal underworld, told BBC News the conviction has big implications for both the U.S. and Mexico's government's fight against the corruption of organized crime. This could encourage prosecutors to go after other cases, he said. They took a certain risk by not having physical evidence and convicting him on testimony from drug traffickers. He added Garcia Luna's conviction could also help dissuade Mexican officials from being openly corrupt. Keyword there, openly. I digress. If you're a Mexican agent, you'll be thinking about how much you expose yourself to the Americans, he said. The ex-minister, widely considered the architect of Mexico's war on drugs, was said to have shared information with the Sonola drug cartel about its rivals and warned the group about law enforcement operations. Garcia Luna denied the allegations. The claims against Garcia Luna's involvement with the Sonola cartel first came to light during a trial against Guzman, who was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years in 2019. A former cartel member testified during Guzman's trial that he had delivered millions of dollars in payments to Garcia Luna. The case against the former minister was built on the testimony of nine cooperating witnesses, mostly convicted cartel members including Zambada. Garcia Luna declined to testify at the trial, but his wife, Linda Cristina Pereira, took the stand and attempted to downplay their finances and lifestyle. In her closing argument, U.S. prosecutor Sarita Comotoretti said the Sonola cartel could not have built a global cocaine empire without Garcia Luna's aid. They paid the defendant bribes for protection, she said, and they got what they paid for. Garcia Luna's lawyers argued the witnesses were testifying against him to save themselves after committing horrific crimes. Alejandro Hope, a former Mexican intelligence official, said the conviction would come as no surprise to those closely following the trial in Mexico. 
It was certainly enough to convince the jury, although many others will be unconvinced, he told BBC News. The conviction could complicate some parts of U.S.-Mexico cooperation, he said. There won't be any sort of rupture or open dispute, he added. But it will be known that the U.S. has its eyes on Mexican officials. For some, that will make things difficult. So, I found this story to be very interesting and very noteworthy. Um, I thought it was ironic that as I have been watching Narcos on Netflix and catching up on that show that I've heard about for years, I get into Narcos Mexico and boom, this article hits the newsstands. I guess it didn't hit the newsstands probably. They don't have a lot of newsstands anymore. (laughs) But this article came out and uh, I have so many thoughts about it. Um, In watching a show like Narcos, I don't know if your brain works this way, but um, when I watch a show like that that delves into the history of another country and crime in that country and politics in that country and history of that country and history of uh, America's relationship with that country and how our policies affected them, I I understand that the show has a certain level of fiction involved. It has to. It's made for TV, right? They have to keep things interesting. It's not a line-by-line history of what happened, okay? It's a fictionalized version of what happened made for television, So what I always do when watching a show like that is it causes me to look deeper into the situation. It causes me to take a deeper dive, to start doing research, to read books and articles and all kinds of things to get an understanding of what really went down and how things really happened and unfolded and what really shaped the landscape. Uh, Maybe you just watched the show and eat some popcorn. I'm a strange person, I know, but... uh, (laughs) But I love to learn. And so I've been doing that and I've been uh, reading and thinking and and looking at uh, Mexican politics and cartel. And uh, certainly there is a history of corruption when it comes to the politicians in Mexico. Just like in every other country. It may be on a more grand scale. uh, It may be in a different way. But yes, okay, there is a history of corruption. It's also true that American policies have greatly uh, destabilized and affected that nation as well. Um, The different policies we've had toward immigration, the way that we have or have not protected our border, uh, the U.S. war on drugs, NAFTA, um, the relationship between presidents, all of these things, businesses from border to border and on border towns, all of this stuff has had an impact on different regions and states of Mexico and the cartels that run that particular plaza. And the reality that rarely gets talked about in talking about the war on drugs and drugs coming across our border is that the overwhelming reason that it's such a big problem is not because of border security or lack thereof. It's not because we don't have enough DEA agents. It's not because of the partnerships between businesses across borders and the way that they hide money and shell corporations and the way that cartels buy influence with Mexican politicians. We've, we've heard about all of that. The thing that doesn't get brought up enough in discussing the whole situation is the fact that the reason drugs pour across our border and have for years and, and probably always will is because there's always a demand on this side of the border. I know that's simplified. 
I know that's kind of getting to the root cause, but there's always a demand for drugs. We have a problem in our country that still has not been effectively addressed when it comes to drug use, when it comes to addiction, when it comes to the way that that causes problems in our communities and our families, and how those problems on a small scale extrapolate out to something even bigger and create a scaffolding that holds all of this together. The reason why cartels bring us the drugs is because we want the drugs and we're willing to pay for them. And because there's so much money to be made, there's money to buy politicians and judges and police, there's whole organizations that exist for no other purpose than to make money by importing and exporting drugs, by bringing in drugs and bringing back money. And to me, it's really sad, the effect that it has on our nation and on our people, but also the effect that it has on the nation of Mexico and on their people, especially those who are the poorest of the poor. And look, I'll tell you, I'm not the smartest man. I'm just a man in the backyard of my home in Alabama in a shed. I don't have the answer. I don't know how to address this problem. But the truth is, is that the things that we have tried in this country simply have not worked. The most humiliating war in our history is not Afghanistan or Iraq. It's not Vietnam. It's the war on drugs. It really is. It's the war on drugs. And I, I don't say that because I'm a fan of drugs or because I think that everything should be legal. I say that because the way that we have gone about it has done little more than criminalize low-level offenders and disrupt generations of families on our side of the border, while also emboldening those who are the cartel bosses and who are the big fish, and even if you want to take it there, big pharma, in response. So yeah, the, the Mexican version of the head of the FBI has been arrested and has been found guilty because he took millions and millions of dollars worth of bribes from the Sonola cartel. El Chapo's cartel. And that is big news. It's big news internationally. It's going to complicate things between the United States and Mexico. He says he was only found guilty because all of these cartel members took immunity deals in order to, to testify against him, which they did. Doesn't mean he's innocent, but that part is true. And we know that there are officials all over Mexico to this day who take bribes, who allow for these things to happen, who turn a blind eye to enrich themselves. And the rub is that the American government knows. And unless they're embarrassed by it, unless something happens that's, that's too obvious to overlook, unless these people then do what this guy did after he got out of office, he moved to America, which was not smart. We rarely do very much about it other than busting low-level dealers and transporters and criminals. And look, I'm not saying those people don't deserve to be in jail for their crimes and for what they've done. I'm just saying that I wish that we were honest. I wish that we would just say, you know, the reason why there is such a problem at the border and with cartels and with these drug kingpin empires is because we have a real addiction problem in our country. And it's a mental health problem. It's a chemical dependency problem it's a cultural problem it's a lifestyle problem and at some point we're going to have to address it in a way that's effective at some point we're going to have to do something about it that actually makes a difference at some point we're going to have to actually address it on all levels or else we're going to see these stories continue to pop up every three or four years
And a lot of times people look at like the, the 80s or the early 90s when uh, cocaine really took off. They think that these things were only happening then. They're happening today. We just saw the story of the four Americans uh, who got caught in crossfire between two rival cartel groups in the Mexican Gulf. And two of them died, two of them were kidnapped and they were released. The Gulf cartel uh, even turned in five guys and wrote a letter of apology, which is interesting. But the truth is the supply exists because the demand exists. Because just like a, a myriad of other problems that we face as a nation, one thing that we really struggle with and that we haven't got our heads around how to address is this issue of addiction and dependency on illicit drugs. The Just Say No campaign, the Red Ribbon Week at elementary schools, hey, it didn't work. The war on drugs, the DEA agents, the partnering with corrupt factions of the Mexican government to try and weed some of these mid-tier and low-level folks out, hey, it didn't work. Going to Colombia and killing Pablo Escobar, locking up El Chapo, it hasn't worked. And it's time to start figuring out a way to address it on our turf also. Address the mental health side of things. Address the cultural side of things. Address the healthcare side of things, the big pharma side of things. Address the businesses and the banks and the corporations that make this stuff possible, that partner with these folks, that partner with businesses and politicians and kingpins and folks on the other side of the border that we know where their money comes from. To address it with the Mexican government, not in a way that is a feeble partnership, but in a way that is intentional and that prioritizes accountability on both sides of the border. Address in a way that takes a look at smuggling routes and suppliers and economic disparity and large-scale corruption. And until you address all of those things openly and honestly with the help of experts consistently for years, I'm not sure that we'll ever get there. And I don't know that we can. I don't know that you can put the toothpaste back in the tube. But hey, you could try, and we should try. Our next story in the world of politics, Boy Meets World star Ben Savage announces run for Congress. And I'm serious. This is a real news story. This is an exclusive here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Ben Savage, a.k.a. Corey Matthews, is running for Congress. Ben Savage, the actor who rose to famous Corey Matthews on the hit 90s ABC sitcom Boy Meets World, is running for Congress. The actor announced his run on Instagram this week, saying, Together we can do better. I'm a proud Californian, union member, and longtime resident of District 30 who comes from a family of unwavering service to our country and community, Savage said in his announcement. He sounds like a politician. I firmly believe in standing up for what is right, ensuring equality and expanding opportunities for all. And I know that Corey Matthews stands for those things, but do you stand for those things, Ben Savage? <laughs> Savage is vying for the California seat currently held by Rep. Adam Schiff, who in January announced that he's putting in his own bid for Senator Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat in 2024. Feinstein announced in February that she will not be seeking re-election in 2024 when I think she turns 311 years old. But I digress. Savage is running as a Democrat according to his filing with the FEC. 
It's time for new and passionate leaders who can help move our country forward, Savage said in his announcement. Leaders who want to see the government operating at maximum capacity, unhindered by political divisions and special interests. Savage starred in Boy Meets World from 1993 to 2000. He reprised the role in 2015 for the spinoff Girl Meets World, which ran for three seasons. He also starred as kidnapper Nathaniel Kibbe in the 2022 Lifetime true crime movie Girl in the Shed, The Kidnapping of Abby Henderson. And I did not see that movie on Lifetime. And I'm not sure that I ever will. Because I don't want to see Corey Matthews as a kidnapper, okay? I want to see him as the husband of Topanga. I want to see him as the best friend of Sean Hunter. And possibly, possibly, I'm just spitballing here, maybe as a U.S. congressman. But not a kidnapper. I don't want to see him as a kidnapper. The announcement seems to have garnered support from both fans and co-stars of the ABC series, with one person commenting, Boy Meets Congress. Fellow Boy Meets World actor Matthew Lawrence, who played Jack Hunter, said, Let's go. Savage wrote on his campaign website that his priorities will include improving police-citizen interactions through more intensive training and checks and balances to root out corruption. Maybe he should run for Congress of Mexico. <laughs> He also wrote that he will fight for more affordable housing and veteran resources, protect unions, push for universal pre-K, school meals, community college, and to work to secure more funding for mental health and substance abuse services. He also said it's important that we codify Roe v. Wade and said that he will oppose offshore drilling initiatives while supporting environmental regulations. I'm just going to say it because it feels, it feels right. It feels appropriate when covering this story. <laughs> that was a very bad attempt at a Feeney call, um, which his brother on the show, Eric Matthews, would do often. Um... So yeah, Ben Savage is running for Congress. I bet you didn't hear much about this on Fox News, did you? You didn't read about this in the Wall Street Journal, no. But here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson, we're bringing you the news that matters, baby. Boy meets Congress. And I understand that in reality, he is not married to Topanga Lawrence. That was just on TV. But, if he does make Congress... I feel like it's only right that she should be the first lady of whatever district he represents. <laughs> I love Boy Meets World. I used to watch that on TGIF. Thank God it's Fridays on ABC. Used to watch it. I think Sabrina the Teenage Witch was on there too. Um, yeah. Good show, Boy Meets World. And Ben Savage is running for... Congress, and I gotta say, he can't be any worse than Adam Schiff. He can't be any worse. It's always interesting when famous people run for office. Ronald Reagan certainly had a certain level of fame as an actor before he became president. Then you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor of California, Trump as U.S. president, and now Corey Matthews trying to make Congress. Uh, you won't find this news very many other places. 
we bring you the news that matters straight from COVID lab leak theory to the Mexican cartel to Boy Meets World. Because why not? That's how we roll. Our last very important news story this week in the world of politics. Why are people eating oranges in the shower on TikTok? (laughs) We haven't put out a show in months. It's episode 58. We just got featured on a a PBS article and, and short documentary piece. And here we are. Talking about why are people eating oranges in the shower on TikTok. This show is great. I love being with you guys. From hair masks to cold rinses, people incorporate many different shower rituals into their routines. But a particularly interesting one that's caught hold on social media is eating an orange in the shower. The concept is simple. (laughs) I would say so. I don't think the concept could be anything other than simple. How would the concept be difficult? How would it be complex? It's pretty self-explanatory. Eating an orange in the shower. Hey, how do I eat an orange in the shower? We're going to tell you. The concept is simple. Turn on your shower, grab an orange, get in, and start peeling and eating the fruit, enjoying all that citrusy goodness. Although there's no way to really say who first tried the shower experiment, some link the trend to 2015 Reddit posts from a sense-deleted account that described the feel-good experience of shower oranges. That same year, the Shower Orange subreddit was created. More recently, the Shower Orange concept has reached new audiences on TikTok, where a growing number of videos extolling the virtues of this bathing ritual are popping up online. So people are eating oranges in the shower. Um... (laughs) Look, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have uh, any any pause in telling you that there is something that I enjoy, and that is uh, these little circular deals that are kind of like a bath bomb but are made for your shower. I got given them as a Christmas gift one time, and I thought, I am a man. I do not need this. All I need is a bar of soap, a towel. And a wash rag. I get in, I get out, I stay clean, I smell good. But I got gifted one of these little deals and uh, they were labeled different things. Some of them were citrus scented, some of them were lavender to relax you, some of them were eucalyptus to calm you. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. And I put one of these little bad boys in the shower and as you're showering, the water hits it. It starts to release uh, certain smells kind of creates an ambiance and listen listen i'm a man i'm 33 years old and it's delightful it's paul rudd level delightful okay to have this eucalyptus scent arising into the air the aroma is refreshing it's relaxing i enjoy it i enjoy it but hey one thing you will never find me doing okay is eating anything in the shower. I feel like if you are consuming food in the shower while bathing, you have reached a different stage in life. And you have a whole host of other problems that the good citrus smell of an orange 
and the refreshment of that vitamin C cannot sort out for you. TikTok is crazy. TikTok in China is all about science experiments and learning. And they turn it off at a certain time of night and they only allow you to scroll for a certain period of time. But hey, TikTok America, we eating oranges in the shower. We're eating oranges. And you're just supposed to like hold the peelings or you throw them to the ground like peanut shells at a Texas roadhouse. What are we doing? What are we doing? I'll tell you what we're not doing on In the Shovel West. And that's eating oranges in the shower. That's where you're supposed to bathe. The purpose of a shower is to get clean and to rinse the dirt off your face and to wash your hair, not to eat your citrus. Y'all people crazy. I find this to be absurd. And I'm including it on a news program. That's all the news in the world of politics this week. Let's switch to this, the news in the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Minnesota Vikings release wide receiver Adam Thielen. Eagles allow cornerback Slay to seek a trade. Kevin Durant likely to miss two to three weeks with an ankle injury. Lakers guard D'Angelo Russell to return to lineup. Josh Gaddis hired as Maryland's offensive coordinator. OBJ to hold workout for teams this weekend. New York Jets believe they can land quarterback Aaron Rodgers. Jim Beheim retires as basketball coach of Syracuse. And finally, NBA Hall of Famer Patrick Ewing is out as head coach of Georgetown, being fired after compiling a record of 75 and 109 in six years as coach there. Let's start this week in the world of the NBA. Where in the Eastern Conference, the standings look like this. The Bucks have the overall number one seed, followed by the Celtics, the 76ers at three, the Cavaliers at four, the Knicks at five, the Nets at six, the Heat at seven, and my Atlanta Hawks rounding out the top eight. And in the West, the Nuggets have a big lead there, followed by the Kings, who have moved up into the second spot, the Grizzlies at third, Suns at fourth, Clippers at fifth, the Warriors at sixth, the Timberwolves at seventh, the Mavericks at 8th, and the Lakers at a close ninth. And in the Western Conference, spots 5 through 9 are only decided by two games right now. Only separated by two games. The ninth place, Los Angeles Lakers, and the 5th place, Los Angeles Clippers. So very tight in the West. So we are really entering the home stretch of the NBA season, gearing up for the playoffs. And in the East, it's really the Bucks and the Celtics and everybody else. Um, the Bucks really look like one of the best couple of teams in the league right now. They have championship pedigree. They have uh, the coaching staff. They have the talent. They have the best player in the game. And the Celtics, even though they have had a phenomenal season and a great story, they're cooling off a little bit. But even cooling off, they're at second in the East. Uh, and then there's everybody else. The Knicks are playing well right now, but they're not a championship contender. The 76ers and the Cavs both have enough talent to make it out of the East, but they've really got to prove it in the playoffs, and no one else is a threat. Um, in the West, it's kind of a different story. In the Western Conference, it's wide open. The Nuggets have to be the, the favorites heading into the playoffs. 
but they're really in the same boat as the 76ers. They've got to prove it in the playoffs because the Joker, Nikola Djokovic, has won the MVP award twice. He's the favorite to win the MVP for a third straight year, putting him in rarefied air. He's a fantastic big man, the first or second best big man in the league, a top five or six player in the league. But he hasn't gotten it done in the playoffs yet. And the Nuggets don't really have an excuse this year. They're running away with first place in the Western Conference. They have a healthy Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, one of the more underrated coaches in all the league in Mike Malone. They have a lot of talent and a lot of depth. But can they put it together in the playoffs and come out of the Western Conference? It remains to be seen. The Sacramento Kings continue to impress. Uh, Mike Brown has to be the runaway coach of the year in the NBA this year. Malik Monk is having a career year. De'Aaron Fox has been a star for years. He just doesn't get seen. DeMontis Sabonis is a very good NBA all-star caliber player. The Kings are looking really good, but they have not had playoff experience. And then you have the Suns. They made the trade for KD. They have an aging Chris Paul. They have Devin Booker, a premier scorer. They have DeAndre Ayton. But they also gave away some quality depth and some defense. And they're putting all their eggs in the basket of can Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and Kevin Durant remain healthy. Kevin Durant's already injured and is out for two to three weeks. What happens if he doesn't play with this group again until the playoffs? Are they going to be able to outscore every team in the playoff setting four games out of seven? It remains to be seen if they can be healthy. The Clippers are starting to put things together a little bit in the Western Conference. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and the collection of talent they have there that uh, Steve Ballmer has put together, it should be good enough to win a championship. Ty Lu is a good coach, but they've underperformed and they haven't been on the court all at the same time very often up until now. Then you have the Warriors. The Warriors who started to make progress and look like they were turning the corner. Clay Thompson, who... Looked like Klay Thompson again. They won five games in a row. And then when Steph Curry came back, they've dropped all three that they've played. Which is interesting. Which is curious. Steph Curry, who is still a top five NBA basketball player. He's still playing at a high level. His second game back from injury, he scored 40 points. But they just don't have enough quality depth. They don't have enough defense. And since Curry has come back, they've gone to a small lineup that really hasn't performed well. I don't understand why they're taking Kevon Looney. They're one of their better defenders, their best screen setter, a guy that understands the system, that can match up size-wise with some of these other NBA bigs. They've taken him out of the lineup and played him less minutes. And I think that's an adjustment that Steve Kerr is going to have to make to put him back in the starting lineup and leave him there. They're waiting for Andrew Wiggins to come back, hoping that that is enough. Maybe they get Gary Payton back when the playoffs come Andre Iguodala is back as well, but is it enough? They don't want to fall into that that play-in tournament. They really have to hold on to a top-six seed and really probably need home court advantage in the first round. They're still a very good team at home. They're horrendous on the road. The Mavericks can score with anybody. After trading for Kyrie Irving, him and Luka together are very dynamic on offense. On offense but they give up a tremendous amount of points every time out, and they don't have a winning record with those two together. Then there's the Lakers. The Lakers, who I 
buried. Who I buried. Don't look now, but they are a couple games out of fifth. And Anthony Davis actually looks like Anthony Davis. Since LeBron has been out, Anthony Davis has looked tremendous. They got younger and more athletic at the trade deadline, adding Malik Beasley, adding Jared Vanderbilt. They became a better defensive team. They're about to get D'Angelo Russell back from injury. And don't underestimate the fact that LeBron is resting. I know he's not playing, and I know that he's injured. He's missing key games. But if they're in the playoff mix, especially if they're a top-six seed, and LeBron James comes back after rest, things could get interesting in the West. And then you have the team that is, at this moment, the biggest enigma of all in my mind. The Memphis Grizzlies. Because the Grizzlies have been one of the two best teams in the West all season, and they still sit at third. They had a big win over the Warriors at home, but they have faltered. And they faltered because Ja Morant. They faltered because of his lack of leadership and maturity off the court, his decision making. He's a spectacular player. He's tremendously athletic, tremendously entertaining, dynamic with the ball in his hands, a must-watch basketball player. He makes them better on the court. But you can tell that his coach and his teammates and the organization are frustrated with his decisions. And this isn't just about the video that he put on Instagram Live from a nightclub in Denver where he flashed a gun. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, but things had been bubbling up for a while. There's two different police reports with John Moran's name on them. One where he allegedly threatened a teenager with a gun at his house after playing pickup basketball. Another incident as well. And plus a, a report that was filed with the league after a game with the Indiana Pacers. Where Pacers players and personnel alleged that John Morant and some of his buddies threatened them after the game. Pointed a laser at them as though it were attached to a gun. And I get that none of those things were substantiated. But putting yourself in such a position time and time again when you are the face of a franchise and a top 10 to 12 player in the league is absurd to me. It's absurd. I know John Morant is a young man. I know that he's still in that stage of life where you're trying to figure things out. He was given millions of dollars at a young age. I get it. But it also shows a lack of awareness and a lack of maturity. And it really had started to bubble up on the court as well. You saw several incidents between the Grizzlies players and fans, between John Morant's father and John Morant's buddies, and opposing players. And it's taken a toll on the team. They've gone through a couple of extended losing streaks during all of this chaos. And something that you don't want from your best player down the stretch of the season approaching the playoffs is for that person to be a chaos maker. And right now, that's what Ja Morant has become for his team. And he's serving this indefinite suspension. The team does not call it that, but that's what it is. And we still haven't heard from the league office about it. Authorities in Denver say that Ja Morant will not be charged with a crime. Their investigation is complete. But that doesn't mean that he made good choices. That doesn't mean that he's in the right headspace. And for those reasons, I'm not sure that you can trust a team like the Memphis Grizzlies to go all the way in a wide-open Western Conference. And it's unfortunate. So in the East, it's really the Bucks and the Celtics. 
in the West is wide open. I'm looking to see how the Nuggets and the Kings play in the playoffs. I'm watching to see if the Suns can stay healthy. I'm watching to see if the Warriors can actually put something together, if they can stay out of that play-in tournament. And I want to see how much of a run the Lakers make. As they await LeBron James' return, as Anthony Davis continues to play well, what kind of run can they put together? In college basketball, we are in the throes of March Madness. This is my absolute favorite time of the year when it comes to sports. I love March Madness. We're in our conference tournament phase. NCAA tickets are being punched. And currently the top 10 looks like this. Houston is ranked number one in the country, followed by UCLA at two, Kansas at three, Alabama at four, Purdue at five, Marquette at six, Texas at seven, Arizona at eight, Gonzaga at nine, and Baylor at ten. Taking a look around the SEC at the SEC tournament in Nashville. In the first round, Ole Miss defeated South Carolina 67-61. LSU topped Georgia 72-67. And then in the second round, Arkansas outlasted Auburn 76-73. Mississippi State beat Florida by a point in overtime 69-68. And Tennessee ended Ole Miss's season, putting them out of their misery by a score of 70-55. And a very good Vanderbilt team beat LSU 77-68. Those scores set up today's games in the SEC tournament with Mississippi State taking on Alabama, Tennessee playing a hot Missouri team, Arkansas playing Texas A&M, and Vanderbilt playing Kentucky. Right now I think it's safe to say that there are seven SEC teams who most assuredly will punch a ticket into the tournament. Those teams being Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Texas, A&M, Missouri, Auburn, and Arkansas. I think Mississippi State has a very good chance of making the tournament as well. And should Vanderbilt be Kentucky, Vanderbilt deserves a spot also. Jerry Stackhouse has very quietly put together a good season for Vanderbilt. They've really turned things around after a rough start. And they're one of the best 68 teams. It's possible the SEC, a football conference could have nine teams in the field of 68. It's not an assured thing, but it's a very possible thing. Being that we have not recorded a show in a couple of months, we really haven't covered college basketball uh, as in-depth as we normally do, but something we always do is heading into March Madness, we give you four teams to watch. These are four teams that are not ranked in the top 10, four teams that we feel like could make a run in the NCAA tournament, And we've given you some winners. We've given you some good teams okay. We've given you teams that wind up making the Final Four, the Elite Eight, teams that people aren't really talking about or watching. And those four teams this year are Texas A&M, Creighton, Florida Atlantic, and Indiana. So when you fill out your bracket, watch those four teams. Buzz Williams has really put together a good squad in Texas A&M. They play incredible defense. They're a good offensive rebounding team. They're tough. If they can knock down outside shots, they can beat anybody in the country. Creighton is another team that is battle-tested. They're a good scoring team. They have a good offense. They can outscore you. Florida Atlantic is a very good mid-major team that could make a run. And I like Indiana. I like what Mike Woodson has done. I like how, how they're playing basketball right now at this time of the year. And those are our four teams to watch. Those are our four teams that we think could make a deep run in this year's tournament field. And when the brackets are released, we're going to record a show. 
this this episode of the show, episode 58, will come out this weekend. And then Sunday, we'll record a show where we just pull out the bracket. Our March Madness extravaganza, we're going to pull out a bracket. We're going to go through each region game by game, take a look at the matchups, and see who we have winning each of them. I'll fill out my bracket on air with you. So get yours out, get your pen, get your paper, and get ready to pick some winners. It's going to be a lot of fun. Unfortunately, even though it is March Madness and the tournament and the teams that are in, the teams that are on the bubble, the teams that could make a run should be the best story. Should be what's been leading college basketball. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. Because there's one team in Alabama who has spent a good portion of the year ranked number one in the country, a team that might be the best team in the nation. A team that has a a dynamic freshman who's probably going to be a top five NBA draft pick. But instead of their greatness on the court, the story has been everything that has happened there this season as one of their players, Reserve Darius Miles, was charged with murder of a 23-year-old single mother. Apparently, Darius Miles had been drinking and got into an altercation with this young lady and her boyfriend. Shots were exchanged, and this young lady passed away at the scene. Darius Miles was arrested, immediately kicked off the team and out of school. He's been charged with murder. But since then, the firestorm surrounding the situation has not calmed down one iota. If anything, it has intensified as testimony from the police officers who were at the scene and who investigated the crime brought to light that two other Alabama players, including SEC Player of the Year, were at the crime scene also. In fact, one police officer testified that the, the gun that was used in the crime was in the backseat of the brain. received a text from Darius Miles requesting that he bring his piece, meaning his gun, to him. The Brandon did so. And then, according to the testimony of this officer, parked his car in such a way that the victim of the crime and her boyfriend could not leave the scene. Brandon Carr was so close to the murder scene, in fact, that bullet holes from shots fired were in his windshield. He left the scene and only returned once police requested that he do so. After such testimony was given by a police officer, Alabama head coach Nate Oates came out in a press conference saying that Brandon would have done nothing wrong, that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the firestorm really erupted at that point. Now, I'm not here to besmirch the character of a young man who has never been in trouble with the law. That's not what we do here on this show. We're not about sensationalism. We're not over the top. We're not bombastic. That's not what we do. Save that for first fake. Save that for undisputed. That's Skip Bayless type stuff. We don't do that here. The AD in Tuscaloosa has already said that Brandon is not going to be charged with a crime, that he did not break any Alabama law. But even so, what I find despicable about this situation, and I use that word intentionally, despicable, is the actions of the Alabama head basketball coach Nate Oates, as well as the athletic director in this circumstance, in this situation. Because you have a situation where three of your players, three players of a roster of 15, were present for a murder, who were involved in being at a murder scene. And the guy who committed the murder, the reserve on the team, was kicked off the team. He's been arrested and charged. And the other two guys have been in the starting lineup every game since. The athletic director went on a podcast with an Alabama 
alumni, an ESPN reporter who's an Alabama alumni, and said that they had conducted an investigation, but then Nate Oates said that uh, when he made his comments, he didn't even have that information at the time, so what kind of investigation could they have even done? You have a situation where a young man made a terrible mistake and someone died. He didn't pull the trigger. I'm not saying he was an accessory to murder. We're not going there. He's not being charged with the crime, but at least, at least Brandon Miller made a very fateful and horrific decision in bringing a gun to a teammate that you know had been out at the bar and had been drinking late at night. What do you think he needs that gun for? What do you think he's going to do? Why are three of your players, 40% of your starting lineup, so close to a murder that they wind up with bullet holes in their front windshield of the car? That's alarming. That's alarming. And then to make comments that are so insensitive that they're so flippant when a life has been lost. And not to sideline those guys at all for any amount of time. I'm not saying Brandon Miller should be kicked off of the basketball team. I'm not saying that Alabama should cancel their season. But let's call a spade a spade. Let's be honest about what's going on in Tuscaloosa. This team has the opportunity to be the best basketball team that Alabama has ever seen. To make their first ever Final Four, possibly to cut the nets down, to win an SEC basketball tournament. And that's why even when these two guys were there, when they made poor decisions that contributed to someone being killed, they didn't miss a second of time on the basketball court. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. We all know that it's true. It doesn't matter if you're an Alabama basketball fan or not. I'm so tired of hearing people say, well, he didn't break the law. He's not being charged with a crime. I'm sorry, is legality the baseline here? Is whether or not someone broke a law the only basis on which we can take action for a student-athlete who's on full scholarship to play at our universities? I've seen players lose playing time, sit out of games because their grades weren't good, because they got a DUI, because they shoplifted, because they violated NCAA rule. And in this situation, two of your guys were at a murder scene Your very best player brought the handgun to the person who then used it in commission of a crime. And they don't sit out a single minute. They don't miss a single game while your school does an in-depth investigation. You don't give them time off to get counseling, to get their head right, to wrap their minds around the decisions that they made and how that might have affected somebody's entire family. I find it to be absurd. I find it to be unfortunate and sad. I think Nate Oates comes across as someone who is out of touch with reality, someone who is sanctimonious, someone who has shown a clear lack of leadership. He even even admitted to calling Ray Lewis and asking how to handle a situation like this. What are you doing? Get a hold of your program. You have three guys who are at a murder scene, 20% of your roster, 40% of your starting lineup, and there's no discipline whatsoever just because the guy didn't break a law. If that's the standard that we're using, we've really lost sight of what college athletics is supposed to be about. And I'm not moralizing. I'm being realistic. I'm being honest. What's happening here is that the University of Alabama is in win-at-all-cost mode, 
We don't even know what they knew and when they knew it. We don't have the full story. And the university is not only doing a disservice to this young lady and her family, but also to Brandon. Because this is not what accountability looks like. It's not what leadership looks like. It's not helpful to his development as a person and to his future. I'm not saying that he deserves to go to prison. I'm not saying kick him off the team. But you don't even sit these two guys down. You don't even give them time away from the team. You don't even address it in a way that is clear, above board, and transparent. Shame on Alabama. Shame on Alabama. Shame on Nate Oates. It's a dereliction of duty. Whether or not a player is being charged with a crime is an incredibly low bar. It's the lowest of low standards. And in my mind, it's a stain on their season and a stain on their accomplishments moving forward. And it's completely unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary. And I would say the same thing for the record. I know people will be in my mentions. People will be in my inbox. But I would feel exactly the same way if it was my team. In fact, I would feel worse. Because I would expect my head coach and my university to do better than what Nate Oates and Alabama has done. And that's real. That's all the news in the world of sports. Let's switch to this, the news in the world of the paranormal. And for our first story in the news in the world of paranormal, we go to the Biden administration. Yeah. That's an M. Night Shyamalan twist you did not expect, but we're going to the Biden administration for our paranormal news. Biden and National Archives sued over JFK assassination records. The Mary Farrell Foundation, a nonprofit organization and online database containing the most comprehensive archive of records pertaining to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, has sued President Biden and the National Archives and Records Administration for postponing the release of roughly 15,000 documents concerning the former president's murder. The claim, filed in San Francisco federal court on Wednesday, alleges that federal officials have acted outside the law and their failure to make those redactions available to the public, thereby depriving researchers and historians of opportunities to learn about the JFK assassination. Almost three years into his presidency, Kennedy was fatally shot while riding in a motorcade through Dallas, Texas, on November 22, 1963, in what is considered the most infamous and widely discussed political assassination of the 20th century. A lengthy federal investigation found former U.S. Marine Lee Harvey Oswald solely responsible for the shooting, but murky details about the circumstances of JFK's death invited a number of conspiracy theories and ongoing conjecture from academics, authors, and filmmakers, as well as general population. Uh, and your boy. Add me to the list of people who are skeptical of the narrative. Skeptical of the official narrative. Rising public interest in the assassination records plus speculation about a rumored government cover-up prompted the passage of the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act in 1992, mandating the eventual publication of all unreleased documents. That law, which was signed by former President George H.W. Bush, former head of the CIA, by the way, originally established an October 2017 deadline for the federal government to publish all remaining documents related to the assassination. The initial deadline was effectively pushed by then-President Donald Trump, who at the time ordered the release of about 2,800 previously unseen files, but withheld thousands of others for national security reasons, quote-unquote, 
saying they needed further review. Then, in a memo issued last October, Mr. Biden announced another delay and set a new deadline for the record's release, which now falls on December 15th, which of course came and went. But I digress. The pandemic had prevented the National Archivist from conducting its review as planned, according to the White House, and finishing the job would require more time than expected. Mr. Biden cited security concerns as the basis of his decision to support the archivist's request to postpone. Temporary continued postponement is necessary to protect against identifiable harm to military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or the conduct of foreign relations that is of such gravity that it outweighs the public interest in immediate disclosure, he allegedly wrote, referencing a portion of the JFK Records Act that allows continued postponement for those reasons, as long as there is clear and convincing evidence for the delay. However, the Mary Farrell Foundation still claims that Mr. Biden and the NARA failed to publish redactions along the Records Act's initial timeline breaching its mandates. These failures have resulted in confusion, gaps in the records, overclassification, and outright denial of thousands of assassination-related files five years after the law's deadline for full disclosure, the organization said in a statement. Wednesday's lawsuit seeks a judicial order to either force the government to make unreleased JFK assassination records available to the public or otherwise conduct a thorough review of all undisclosed documents using a specific set of criteria outlined in the 1992 law. While the suit acknowledged that the act allowed for the postponement on the basis of national security, it alleged that federal officials have not followed the law's standards for what constitutes clear and convincing evidence of potential consequences that could come with releasing the documents. In explaining the JFK Act's stringent declassification standard, Congress said when an agency presented evidence of identifiable harm that would result from disclosure, the identifiable harm had to consist of more than speculation, the lawsuit states. Records could not be postponed because of some conceivable or speculative harm to national security. Rather, in a democracy, the demonstrable harm from disclosure must be weighed against the benefits of release of information to the public. The lawsuit also alleged that redactions to some of the previously released documents were significant and unwarranted, enlisted records on Oswald, Fidel Castro, and the Bay of Pigs invasion involving federal bureaus like the CIA and Department of Defense. It additionally claimed there are missing or outstanding records involving those agencies and the FBI, which were allegedly requested by the Assassination's Records Review Board that preceded the NARA. A spokesperson at the CIA responded to the lawsuit in a statement to CBS News on Wednesday saying, The CIA continues to engage in the established process to determine the appropriate next steps with respect to any previously unreleased CIA information in the JFK Act collection in accordance with the JFK Act and President Biden's October 2021 memorandum. So, we all know what this is. Um, this is the government. Our government, the United States government, violating a law that they made by using the out that they gave themselves, and that is by labeling something as a national security concern. And to his credit, Donald Trump did release 2,800 pieces of never-before-seen documentation and evidence. He also punted on a lot, postponed a lot, but he at least gave us something. And then President Biden said, no. 
No, that's all you get. Um, national security concerns. COVID-19. Yada, yada, yada. You can't see it. Doesn't matter that there was a law saying that you had to see it and we're not going to show you. We don't have to. Nana, nana, boo, boo. And as I said previously on this episode, I don't think that I'm all that smart, okay? I don't think I have all things figured out. But to me, to me, it seems pretty obvious that the government does not want us to see these documents. That our intelligence agencies do not want us to see these documents. Our Department of Defense does not want us to see these documents. Because there is something there that is embarrassing to them. Something there that we do not know about. Something there that we can only, to this point, speculate about. It may not be the whole enchilada, but it's at least something that throws the official narrative even more under the bus of disbelief. And they're not going to let us see it. The JFK assassination is um, one of those things that there are so many books that have been written about. There's all these different conspiracy theories. But to this day, I... I don't know that I know anyone personally who believes that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, that there was nothing that was hidden or covered up, and that the official narrative is exactly what happened. Something else happened. Something else was going on here. I'm not saying the CIA did it. I'm not saying that the government was involved in the murder of the U.S. president. But I am saying they don't want to incriminate or embarrass themselves in any way. And they gave themselves an out. As they often do, they gave themselves an out. If we are to label something a national security risk, then we can withhold it from the public. And that's what they're doing in this circumstance. What do you think about this? What do you think happened in this situation? What really went on in Dealey Plaza? Did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone? Do you still believe that narrative? Do you believe in the magic bullet? Do you believe the Warren Commission? Was the CIA involved? Do the connections between Lee Harvey Oswald and the Soviet Union bother you? His connection to Castro. The war that was going on between the Kennedys and the mob. What do you think happened? One of the t-shirts that we have for sale at our Shopify store for the show is a shirt with JFK on it. It just says, let's argue. (laughs) It says, let's argue. Because this story has kind of become the litmus test for folks who are truthers, for folks who are conspiracy theorists, for folks who tend not to believe the official narrative. And there's a lot that we don't know. And a lot that we'll never know about what happened in that November. And Joe Biden and his administration are just doing what those who have come before him have done and contributing to the mystery. From the American president, we go to the Mexican president for our second story in the world of the paranormal. Mexican president shares photo of what he says is a Mayan elf. Everything is mystical. Yeah, from JFK to elves. We're talking Mexican elves. (laughs) President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, 69, 
used his platform over the weekend to tweet a photo of what he claims to be an Alex, a woodland spirit in Mayan folklore. I share two photos of our supervision of the Mayan train works, one taken by an engineer three days ago, apparently from an Alex, another by Diego Prito of a splendid pre-Hispanic sculpture in Ekbalam. His translated tweet reads showing a side-by-side of the alleged elf and a sculpture. Everything is mystical, he added in translation. In the blurry image, the creature can be seen sitting in a tree, much like a monkey or a sloth, with its head facing the camera and its eyes shining. There also appears to be something on its head, but it's unclear exactly what the alleged creature is given. The photo's poor quality. And there has to be poor quality, otherwise the photo would not have the mystery that it does. Bigfoot is blurry. That's why the, the photographs are never convincing. He's just naturally blurry. While Oberdor said the photo of the alleged mythical woodland elf was taken three days ago, U.S. Today reported that the image had been shared online much earlier, specifically in February of 2021, when someone tweeted that the figure was seen in Manchester, England. Did the Mexican president get duped? Did he just get fooled by the interwebs? Is he just not savvy when it comes to the world of Twitter? Maybe he should follow us. We can set him straight. You can follow us at Twitter also, at In the Shed 4. All the cool kids are doing it, including many of them who reside in India. Shortly after, some Mexican media outlets reported that the witch was seen in Nueva León. The Alex that the Mexican president referred to as a small being known for playing tricks on people per Mayan beliefs. The mythical mischievous creatures are believed to live in forests and fields, and people often leave out offerings for them. While some claim the creature in the photo is just a raccoon with a bag on its head, or some other known animal, Oberdor's tweet has since earned more than 7 million views, so it's possible someone who spotted it knows the answer. So... The president of Mexico, whose name rhymes with Labrador, either believes in elves, or at least that everything is mysterious. Or maybe he's just messing with us. (laughs) Maybe his Twitter game is stronger than I give him credit for, and he's just having a little bit of fun. Um... Let me scroll down and take a look at this picture live on the air. Uh, Well, you know, you won't hear my reaction for a couple of days because I have to edit the podcast and then post it. Let's take a look. Okay. um, Looks like an elf to me. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's something. Uh, there's something in a tree. There's some eye shine. And not a lot else that you can make out. Um, I don't look at this picture. I'm going to be honest. I don't look at it and go, yep, that's a raccoon with a bag on its head. Doesn't look like that to me. It could be an animal of some sort. I'm going to go with probably not an elf. That's just me. That's just my opinion. I believe it could be something mysterious. In fact, it is, because it's a mystery of what it is. We don't know what it is. That's the definition of a mystery. It is mysterious. But if it is an elf, I just want to know what kind of cookies he up there making. What kind of delicious Mexican cookies? 
are you in that tree, baking for our culinary pleasure? It could be a crackhead told him to get up in a tree and play a leprechaun. I digress. What do you think, my tools? What do you think, my babies? What is it that the Mexican president has shared a picture of? What is up in that tree? Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4. I would love to hear from you. I would love to read your responses on the air. From a tree in Mexico, we go to an ant bed for our next story. We're going from the presidency of the United States to a tree in Mexico to an ant bed. Because that's how we do on this show. You can't find news like this anywhere else in the world. And that's why we're growing. Mutant parasitic imposter queens lurk in ant colonies. That's right. Mutant parasitic imposter queens lurk in ant colonies. And this is real. To thrive, ant colonies rely on everyone pulling their weight. Much like society. I digress. For raider ants, this means diligent scouts track down other nests, then direct hundreds of savage foragers to attack. They return with pincers gripping dead young ants to feed the settlement. Clones are produced. The colony thrives. And that sounds crazy. That sounds wild to me. Nature is insane. That is a real-life horror movie. They return with pincers gripping dead young ants to feed the settlement. Clones are produced. The colony thrives. But raider ants are among about 50 species plagued by imposters, parasitic ants that resemble queens. They greedily eat the colony's food but shrink their own foraging duties and can only hatch more parasites instead of workers when they reproduce. How the fake queens emerge has long puzzled scientists. It's a real mystery how these things thrive, said Ken Ross, an evolutionary geneticist at the University of Georgia. And what better place to study ants than Georgia, where there are a lot of anthills, anthills the size of mountains. Here in the American South, we don't make molehills into mountains. We make anthills into mountains. I digress. A study published Tuesday in Current Biology offers a solution. A supergene that mutates rapidly between a single generation of raider ants is likely responsible for the royal imposters. The discovery arose from a surprising observation in a lab at Rockefeller University where Waring Tribble and his graduate advisor Daniel Crowner studied colonies of raider ants. These weird mutant queens just showed up, said Tribble, now at Harvard, who led the study. Again, what is it like for this man to go on a date? This man finds somebody, he swipe left, he show up at some bar or restaurant for a very first date, and his date says, oh, I'm a dental hygienist, what do you do for a living? And he says, I study mutant queens infiltrating ant colonies. <laughs> How does young Mr. Tribble ever get a second date? We may never know. Isolated from the rest of the colony in a petri dish, it was plain to see. 
Several of the ants had wings. It's a typical trait for queens in many species, but it was odd because raider ants don't normally have wings or queens. Seeing these winged females was very shocking, very striking, right away, Triple said. I immediately thought it was something genetic. He set about sorting through the 10,000 ant colony. His needle in a haystack search found a total of 14 imposter queens, which he then let reproduce. Their progeny were always the winged parasites. Triple and his colleagues devoted years to studying the mutants and trying to figure out their origin. Years? They devoted, not even they spent or they kind of over the course of time, they devoted years to studying the mutant ants and trying to figure out their origin. Maybe we need to assign Mr. Triple to study and devote himself to the origins of COVID-19. Maybe that's how we get to the bottom of it. Young Mr. Triple, the hero that we did not know we needed. Another geneticist, Sean McKenzie, with a much more simple name, compiled the regular ant's whole genome while Triple analyzed the mutant's genome. Comparing the two genomes let Triple see where the regular and mutant ants differed. In both types of ants, one chromosome carries a collection of genes that are all inherited together and can control important traits and functions known as a supergene. Regular ants have one copy of the supergene and another version that is mutated and recessive, but the imposter queens have two copies of the mutated supergene. Such a mutation in humans would likely kill you, Triple said. Or it may lead to the impending zombie apocalypse. And that's a movie. Directed by who? You guessed it. Wes Anderson. The chromosome is so degenerated, it's a really nasty mutation. But for these ants, what doesn't kill them makes them grow wings. It's overwhelming, likely, that the supergene controls the growth of imposter queens. But more targeted research is needed to confirm the finding, Triple said. What more targeted research can you do than years of focusing on this one thing? Mr. Triple. For decades, the common thinking was that complex traits or behaviors such as, such as parasitism or the number of queens in a colony has would be determined by the combined influence of many genes, said Ross, who discovered the first supergene in ants and wasn't involved in the new study. Why'd they cut Ross out? We were on a break. They cut Ross out. And y'all know the, uh, we covered it on the show before that the whole cast of Friends did not even like or get along with Marcel the monkey. But I digress. But scientists now know, he said, that there may be a lot of genes, but they tend to be locked up in supergenes. That means complex traits can depend on just a single factor, which is amazing, he said. While scientists have identified at least five other ant supergenes, this would be the first to control caste, or whether ants become workers, foragers, or queens. The others have been tied to social behavior. Why ants develop into adults of a certain caste is an open question. It's their choice. It's their choice, my babies. They choose which cast they want. Do you want to be a worker? Do you want to be a forager? Are you the queen ant? It's all choice in 2023. You identify how you want to, ants. I support you. This supergene appears to have removed the parasite's ability to be workers and allows them to play a role not typically found in the raider species. Isolating a caste-based mutant is a really powerful tool, Triple says. Mutants, he said, can be an important window into otherwise black boxes of evolution, something that the rest of us learned by watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
And the article doesn't say that, but I'm just, I'm just tossing out some facts for you, the listeners. This is also the first time parasitic ants of the same species as their host have been observed. While there are many parasitic ants until now, they've been a separate species from their host, perhaps evolving slowly over time from the original species to become their parasite. The new study shows that a parasitic mutation can occur within a species and across a single generation, abending previous hypotheses that such transition takes thousands of years or longer. So, I shared this story because I actually and genuinely find it to be terrifying. It's terrifying. Sure, terrifying on a very, 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 very small scale. (laughs) But terrifying nonetheless that these ants have a mutation in them that changes their whole makeup, that creates these zombie, parasitic, imposter ants that can't even do their jobs, that can't think for themselves, that designates them in a certain caste that eventually leads to their entire civilization crumbling. Maybe that's what's going on with us. We got some type of gene that's making itself known in humanity, causing people to not be able to Perform the tasks that humanity needs of them. It sounds like a horror movie. It sounds like a good book. It sounds like something that I would pay money to watch. And it's happening in real life. It's happening in nature. It's happening in ants. From Ant Hills to U.S. History, we go for our final story this week. The History of the Hatfields and the McCoys, A Timeline of Real Events. The truth is sometimes stranger than fiction, and it's certainly the case with the Hatfields and the McCoys. You may have heard about this famous Hatfield-McCoy feud, you may have seen the dinner show in Pigeon Forge, but do you know the history of the Hatfields and the McCoys? Is the Hatfields and the McCoys a true story? Yes, at least in part. Behind the slapstick comedy and musical numbers that have been interpreted from the story is a real-life history involving stolen pigs, bitter revenge, and sinister plots. So where does our story begin? Let's go back to the era of the American Civil War in 1863. The Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side of the Tug River Valley. The patriarch of the family was William Anderson Hatfield, no relation, or Devil Ants Hatfield, as he was called. Ants ran a successful timber operation which was the main source of wealth for the family. On the other side of the river lived the McCoys. The McCoys were less affluent than the Hatfield family, but they were believed to be well-connected politically. The patriarch of the McCoys was Randolph Old Rand McCoy, or Randall McCoy. Both families fought in the Confederacy during the war, with the exception of Asa Harmon McCoy. So what caused the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys? The feud was really a series of events that began with Asa Harmon McCoy. You see, Devil Ants was believed to be involved with the Logan Wildcats, an infantry of the Confederate Army, and not a football team. Um, They had they had uh, mascot names for the battalions and infantries back then. It was not a football team, even though it sounds like it sounds like Devil Ants played tight end for a high school football team. It was an infantry in the army. 
There are many intricacies and varying reports to this part of the story, but here's the oversimplified version. Ants' friend met his end at the hands of the Union, and Ants wanted revenge. When Asa comes home from the war injured, Ants and the Wildcats sent him a warning, which caused Asa to go into hiding. But reportedly, the moment Asa came out of hiding in 1865, he met his end as well. The person responsible for the crime was never accused or convicted, but the McCoy family pointed fingers at James Jim Vance, Ants' uncle and a member of the militia group. Ants himself had an alibi, just like any Anderson would. An alibi. Where were you? I was in my shed recording a podcast early in the morning that is listened to primarily in India. While some reports claim that this was the start of the famous Hatfield-McCoy battle, other reports say that there wasn't much bad blood between the two families yet. So for the most part, things were more or less peaceful between the families until the second dispute, the famous stolen pig. Thirteen years later, in the late 1870s, chaos broke loose when old Rand accused Floyd Hatfield, a cousin of Devil Ants, of stealing his hog. While this sounds a bit funny today, a pig was an expensive piece of property and a direct source of food and income for the family back then. The dispute was taken to court. However, the local judge, or justice of the peace, happened to be a Hatfield. Some reports claim he tried to make it a fair trial and had a jury of half Hatfields and half McCoys. The key testimony of the case came from Bill Staten, a relative of both families, and the judge ultimately ruled in favor of the Hatfields. So Floyd went free and old Rand was not too happy about it. He also had to pay court costs, and if you remember, the McCoys were not as wealthy as the Hatfields. This sparked a few physical fights between the families over the years. Eventually, the fighting came to a head when Staten, who had the key testimony, was spotted hunting in the woods by two McCoy boys. Some reports say that this was the Staten that gave the testimony, but other reports say this was actually Bill Staten Jr. Either way, Staten or Staten Jr. was alarmed by the two McCoys and fired his weapon at one of the boys. The other McCoys then terminated Staten in response. Some reports say that the two McCoy brothers, Sam McCoy and Paris McCoy, were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense, while other reports say that they were sent to prison. Adding fuel to the fire, the forbidden romance of Rosanna McCoy and John Z. Hatfield. Meanwhile, Rosanna McCoy entered into a relationship with Ance's son, Johnson, or John Z. Hatfield, according to some sources. The two lovers hit it off at a local election day event. Rosanna reportedly left her family to live with the Hatfields in West Virginia. She became pregnant, but Johnson didn't marry her, and because of the baby, her family disowned her. She then decides to live with her aunt. Some folks have even likened the ill-fated romance to Romeo and Juliet. Do you bite your thumb at me, sir? I do indeed bite my thumb at you, sir. But the baby did not survive infancy due to the measles, and Johnson ultimately abandoned Rosanna to marry her cousin, Nancy McCoy, in 1881. And that's some shady behavior, Johnsy. Um, that's being real messy. You leave your lady after your baby don't survive and go marry her cousin which you could imagine dramatically escalated the feud. The feud escalated quickly, to say the least. In 1882, when Ellison Hatfield Ants' brother got into a fight after too much alcohol and was was stabbed 26 times by three of Old Rand's sons, 
The three McCoys were placed under arrest by Hatfield constables. Secretly, Ants organized a large group of followers and intercepted the McCoys before they reached trial. Ants said that if Ellison didn't pass from his injuries, he would let them go. But ultimately, Ellison did pass from his injuries, so the Hatfields tied the boys up to trees and bushes where they met their end. This is where a man named Perry Klein enters the picture with the land dispute. Klein, who was married to a McCoy, lost 5,000 acres of land to the Hatfields in a prior lawsuit. Reportedly, he lost this land in court because he was found guilty of cutting the timber from Ants' land. Some articles say he unfairly lost his 5,000 acres, but other reports say that it was justified. Either way, Klein was an attorney with a vengeance and political connections. And so he used this latest execution of the McCoy boys as an opportunity to contact the governor of Kentucky about the Hatfields and ultimately put bounties on 20 members of the Hatfield clan. This was a huge problem for the Hatfields because anybody could now come after them to collect rewards. A man named Mad Frank Phillips was the main bounty hunter. Phillips made it his personal war to get as many Hatfields across the river as he could. He would carry out raids and abduct Hatfields and bring them to Kentucky, and sometimes he would terminate them. At this point, the feud was getting attention from the press. This put the actual states of Kentucky and West Virginia into a feud. The two governors were standing toe-to-toe reportedly ready to send troops over and invade their neighboring state. And that's wild that that could come from two families fighting, looting, feuding, and killing each other. It could put two states almost at war with one another. Amidst all the chaos and abductions, the Hatfields came up with a plan to end the whole thing in 1888. A group of Hatfields set out to ambush the entire McCoy family at their home on New Year's Day, and this would become known as the 1888 New Year's Night Massacre. Cap Hatfield and Jim Vance led several members of the Hatfield clan to surround the McCoy cabin and opened fire on the sleeping family. The cabin was then set on fire, but Old Rand escaped by making a break for it. However, not all of the family members were quite so lucky. In 1889, the Hatfields were tried, and some were sentenced to life in prison. That was apparently enough to calm down Old Rand. He reportedly lived a quiet life as a ferry operator for the rest of his days, and passed away at the age of 88. Anz was baptized at the age of 72 and spent the next 10 years of his life in peace, believing all his sins were washed away. The feud seemed to disappear. So the patriarchs of the family lived out the rest of their days in peace. And believe it or not, real-life family members made a special appearance for a taping of Family Feud in 1979. They played against each other for cash prizes on the famous game show. A pig was kept on stage as a nod to the stolen pig a hundred years prior. Relics about the two families can be found throughout parts of West Virginia and Kentucky. In 1999, a project known as the Hatfield and McCoy Historic Site Restoration was completed. As a result, a committee of historians spent months researching information to find out the factual history of events surrounding the feud. In the present day, family members will say in interviews that there are varying reports about what actually started the feud. Some say it was just two stubborn old men who got their entire families wrapped up in a battle. The classic title has been loosely interpreted in several shows and movies. All in all, the feud lasted for more than two decades. Some sources say 13 family members met their end, but other sources have higher estimates of 24 or more. In more recent years, retellings of the story has renewed interest in the old feud. The History Channel released a three-part miniseries featuring Kevin Cosner and Bill Paxton. The Hatfield and McCoy dinner feud show in Pigeon Forge features a much more lighthearted take on actual events, 
with a four-course feast and musical acts and dancing. Which side do you believe? Whose side are you on? The Hatfields or the McCoys? So, one thing that we like to do on this show in the paranormal segment of the news from time to time is to cover stories of hidden history or true crime or in this case something that kind of qualifies as a little bit of both. The most famous feud in early American history, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Two families that lived on opposite sides of a state border in the same valley who knew each other well and who did not like each other. Um, a few months ago, I watched the History Channel three-part series with Kevin Cosner and Bill Paxton. Kevin Cosner played Anse Hatfield, and it was a very well-done historical fiction piece. And like I said earlier, it made me do some investigating, some research, made me look into things a little bit more. I find that low country history of early America to be very interesting. And I just so happen to have family from both West Virginia and Kentucky. In fact, my cousin, my oldest cousin and a, a very good friend of mine's last name is McCoy. I don't know if there's relation. My guess is the family probably claims there is because, hey, why not? I also know some Hatfields down here in Alabama who claim to be related to the Hatfields of the story. This was certainly an interesting story and a situation in where two families allowed things to escalate more and more and more. A lot of retributive violence, a lot of pride, a lot of law-breaking, and a situation in which people still don't really know what happened and can't really seem to decide who was in the right. Who was at fault? Which side you got? I would love to hear what you know about this story. What did the article leave out? What about this story and this famous feud was not covered? What information are we missing? Are you Team Hatfield or are you Team McCoy? Do you sympathize more with old Rand McCoy or Anse Hatfield? Do you think everybody was at fault that this was just a mess because two families were making terrible decisions? There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of lives lost. It's a piece of history that I find to be very interesting. And I would love to hear what you think about it. Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at intheshed4 and let us know. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 58. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, the Good Pods app, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at intheshed 4 Tune in again next week when we'll dive into college basketball, pull out our bracket, look at matchups, and pick some winners for our March Madness extravaganza. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it! We sure did.